let's go ahead and get started. We're going to pick right up in the workbook. Uh, you guys are going to get an opportunity uh, to really see, uh, some of you know I'm involved with a missions organization called DM2, which stands for Disciple Makers Multiplied. And we're going to go through a DM2 curriculum on Sunday nights. And really what it what it is, it's going to be a verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Timothy um, <clears throat> with a small uh, topical study at the very beginning, the first few weeks on what the local church is and just kind of take a big picture view of the local church and get into some other details. Obviously, uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy was a book written to uh, a young man that that uh, Paul most likely uh, did uh, lead to the Lord uh, and had spent a lot of time training. And he had actually left Timothy in Ephesus, a city he'd been to, to uh, correct some false teaching and also uh, to, it looks like, reappoint elders. And so we'll, we'll kind of do, we'll kind of look at that as we study the book. But um, that's the game plan. And again, we're going to, we're going to spend about 45 minutes or so working through the curriculum, what you'll see on the PowerPoint. I'm going to, I'm about to share my screen. And so you'll see the PowerPoint, Sue. It's um, every point that I pull up will have a blank in your notebook. Uh, again, the student notes can be accessed at our website. Uh, if you go to the calendar, if you haven't done that or gotten a copy already, um, you can print those out and follow along uh, writing in the blanks. And you'll see that as they pull up on the PowerPoint. And um, again, this this first week is kind of a test run. So we'll work out any kinks. And so if you have any problems this week, just let me know and we'll, we'll fix them for next week. But uh, let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to share my screen here and we'll make sure that that pulls up and then I'm going to open us uh, in a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, I do thank you for the study tonight and I'm just grateful for these kind of uh, technological advances where we can do these kind of things from the comfort of our own homes and I just pray, Lord, that you'd bless the study of your word, that your spirit would would undertake for us this evening um, in terms of teaching our hearts and guiding us and giving us understanding. Uh, Lord, in these types of studies, many times uh, we're learning about uh, facts and truths and big picture items, but we know that you can still take those truths and minister to our hearts in such a way that they um, are useful uh, and helpful to us where we're at today. And so we just pray you do that tonight in the study. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so the DM2 curriculums always start on page seven. And so if you're, you've got your notes, you want to turn to page seven. And uh, we're going to look at the Church of Jesus Christ. And we're going to start with some general information um, about the church. And so the first thing we want to look at is how is the word uh, church used in the New Testament? And so point number one under A says this, the Greek word ekklesia, which is translated church, is comprised of of a compound word. Ek means out of or out from, and kaleo, uh, which klesia is a form of, means to call. And so literally when we we use the Greek word ekklesia, which is translated church, uh, the word church means called out ones. That's the generic meaning uh, of that word. And so originally in, in Greek and Roman culture, an ecclesia was a summoned or called out assembly of people, regardless of the nature of the gathering. We'll kind of see that it was used 
um, not always as a technical term for the church in the way that we view it, but it was a common uh, calling out, uh, a common assembly of people uh, in civic life, in, in Greek and Roman civic life. This, this word ecclesia was used that way. In fact, one of the uses, it was used in the Greek city-states to describe citizens that were summoned for civic duty. And so in cities like Athens, it was considered a great honor and a solemn duty to attend the outcalling. A herald would actually be sent to the city market square to proclaim ecclesia, ecclesia. Uh, and as a result, people would stop what they were doing and, and come to this gathering. And so you would send a herald in that would call out to a group of people and they would gather together in an assembly. And what we find in history is that immediately uh, when this call was sent out by the herald, every citizen would drop what they were doing. They would leave the market. They would leave their stores, their homes, and they would go to attend the meeting. And so this summons from the state was for every citizen to come fulfill his civic responsibilities. Um, and it's also significant that women and slaves were not counted as citizens. Now, now, clearly they were included in the church as we think of the church. But in terms of the generic use of this word in culture, they were not included because they were not counted as citizens. And so that's the generic use of the word. Um, but we also see a more specific use of the word. And, and this is the way that most of us know it. Um, because it was common, this word ecclesia was common in secular writings. The designation te ecclesia or the church, te is just the article the, was unique to the New, the New Testament. Um, the use of the definite article the or te with the word church or ecclesia in Christian literature is evidence of the unique nature of the New Testament church in the minds of the New Testament writers. And so many uh, cultural ecclesias existed, but it was when the New Testament writers articulated it, the ecclesia, identifying a unique uh, establishment or, or outcalling or gathering, um, that it took on a, a more specific uh definition, if you will, in, in terms of what we understand it to be today. So the authors of the New Testament, they commandeered a secular word, ecclesia, making it into a technical term, te ecclesia, to describe God's people in this dispensation. And so this is the primary use of the word in the New Testament, although its secular use is also observable as seen in the following examples. And so the, the workbook here is going to give us some examples of where the secular use is still used, even um, even in the Bible, uh, not referring to the church as we, as we think of it. Um, the first example we see is in Acts 7, uh, 35 through, through 38. Stephen used the term ecclesia to describe the nation of Israel during the time of their wandering in the wilderness. And so Acts 7, 35 through 38 says this, this Moses, whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for years. This is what Moses said to the children of Israel. The Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like from me, like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. This is he who is in the congregation uh, in the wilderness. There's our word congregation. Uh, that's the ecclesia. 
in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods, go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so you, you see the use of the word there. Um, in verse 38, translated congregation, that's our word ecclesia. And so that's not obviously referring to the nation of Israel. It's not referring to the church. Uh, it's referring to a, a gathering uh, of people who were called out. Where were they called out from? Well, they were called out from Egypt into the wilderness. So you can kind of see the generic use of it there. Also in Acts 19.32, um, and that that should read 1941 in your notes. I think it says 941. That's a typo. Um, and that's 1941-1932. Uh, we see that the word ecclesia was actually used to describe an assembly of Diana worshipers in Ephesus. Acts 19.32 says, Some therefore cried one thing and some another for the assembly, there's our word, was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. We jump down to verse 41, same chapter. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So that's our Greek word, ecclesia. Obviously, it's not speaking of the church. This is a group of pagan uh, idol worshipers that are gathering um, according to what they would have viewed their civic duty uh, in stamping out the ministry of the Apostle Paul, who had, uh, who had caused uh, what they would say great harm to their business ventures there. Uh, with Diana worship. And then also in Acts 19.39, in the same setting, uh, this riot in Ephesus, Ecclesia was used to describe a general court of law. Uh, but it, And it says this, verse 39, but if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. There's our word, Ecclesia. And so it's talking about, hey, you've created this riot, you've assembled publicly that's that's really against the law you really need to take care of that in a court setting and he used that to describe he used the word ecclesia to describe that and so what that tells us is simply this the context is going to determine uh, for the use of this word if it's referring to a secular assembly or specifically to the church of jesus christ and so we see a use of it obviously referring to the church of jesus christ in acts 20 let's go ahead and read those two references, <clears throat> Acts twenty seventeen says, "From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church." There's our te ecclesia. Clearly, he's calling uh, for the elders or the leaders of that local church um, in Ephesus, not just some random assembly or that riotous mob in Ephesus that we just read about in Acts nineteen, but specifically that local church, and then. Down in verse 28 of chapter 20, uh, he says this, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And then this next phrase, to shepherd the church of God. This is our word, te ecclesia, which he purchased with his own blood. And so uh, the point there is we want to understand uh, from the context exactly what ecclesia they're talking about. Is it a generic use or is it the specific use of the church as we kind of understand uh, what the church is. Now, one of the things we also have to recognize is, is point number three, when referring specifically to the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, the word church refers both to the universal church 
and then also to specific local churches. And that's very important uh, to make the distinction. Uh, and, and one of the distinctions, if you will, or one of the main distinctions uh, between the two is that the local church is an autonomous group of believers in Christ who are united both geographically and spiritually, whereas the universal church refers to all believers in Christ, no matter where they are located on the globe um, or even what time period they lived in. So you've got members of the the universal church of Jesus Christ who lived in 33 AD and who have died since then. And then you've got members of the church of Jesus Christ who, who just got saved this year in 2020. And all of those people would be members of the universal church, but the local church um, is different. There's a There's a connection not only spiritually, but also geographically. And so when we look at the New Testament, the primary use of the word ecclesia in the New Testament refers to local churches or assemblies in specific cities. Now, it doesn't mean that it doesn't, that the New Testament doesn't refer to the universal church because it does. And we'll look at a passage even tonight that I believe refers specifically to the universal church. But what we're saying is the primary use of the word uh, refers to local churches, and we could read through all of those um, references they've got there. They're there for your own um, perusal, but what you'll find is when Paul writes an introductory greeting, he addresses the church at Corinth, or the church, the churches of Galatia, or uh, in, the, in the case of Philemon, the church that meets in his home. Clearly, that's not the universal church meeting in one person's home. That's a local church. Uh, we know from the other scriptures that Philemon hosted the church of Colossae. And so he uh, is talking about the church in Colossae there. Um, and then obviously Revelation 1, 4 and, and chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation address the seven seven churches. Not the seven, but there were more than that. But, but seven churches in Asia Minor. And so that's why you've got the letters from the Lord Jesus to the seven churches in Asia Minor in Revelations 2 and 3. And those are all referring to local churches. And so... Just saying that the primary use of the word refers to local churches or assemblies um, in specific cities. Again, mentioned as mentioned, the word less often refers to the universal church, which is comprised of every individual believer living and dead from all the various local churches down through the ages for the past 2000 years. And as we look at some of the references to the universal church, we see in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Also in Ephesians 1, 22 through 23, speaks of the universal church when it says that God gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body. And I am going to check something really quickly. Give me a second here. Letter B, let's focus in now. Uh, on the very first mention of the word church in the Bible. And let's go to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And obviously those that know your Bible recognize that uh, this puts us in the New Testament. And the church was was not mentioned or even prophesied about in the Old Testament. Very unique. We'll, we'll talk about that some. Uh, but let's look at the first use of the word church um, in the new, in the, in the Bible itself. And we find that in the new Testament. And so the first mention of the church referring specifically to, 
Christ called out ones is found in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And so we see that in Matthew 16, 18. Uh, the other thing we would see is that as we study the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, confirms that the church is a New Testament entity made up of believing Jews and Gentiles, and that we see the church did not exist in the Old Testament, nor was it even mentioned. And we got to remember a couple of things in terms of just uh, distinctions as we talk about uh, even the people on earth, because in the Old Testament, before Genesis 12, before the call of Abraham, there was only one people group on earth. It was, it was all Gentiles. There were, there were not even Jews um, by definition before Genesis 12. And so from creation to Genesis 12, we've got a world full of Gentiles. And amongst that, that world of Gentiles, God selected one man, Abraham, and, and called him out of his country to a land that he would show him. And he was going to create a nation from his, uh, from his seed. And so that became the nation of Israel. And so from Genesis chapter 12, um, all the way until the day of Pentecost, there were only two groups of people on earth. There were, you were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. You were either of Abraham's physical lineage or you were not. And so um, you had Jews and Gentiles from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through the day of Pentecost. And so when we get to the day of Pentecost and the formation of the church, um, which is what Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 goes into a lot of detail, what we find is now that there are three different groups of people. There are Jews, there are Gentiles, and then there are, are is the church. And so basically the, the Jew and Gentile population now are, are unsaved. And then any Jew or any Gentile that puts their faith in Jesus Christ and gets saved is now part of the church. And so we've got three people groups. And that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 10.32. You can see the, the distinction mentioned there very clearly. Let's turn there. 1 Corinthians 10.32, which says this, Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. And so you see Paul recognizing that three threefold division amongst mankind there. Also in Ephesians, uh, and we'll turn here for this one, Ephesians 3, 4 through 6 and 3, 9, refer to the church as a mystery. Now the New Testament term mystery uh, does not refer to something mystical or eerie, but simply to something previously undisclosed in the Old Testament. You know, a lot of times we hear the word mystery, we think of mystery novels, we think of mystery movies. Um, that's not how the word is used in the Bible. The word used in the Bible really for, refers specifically to something that wasn't revealed before, but is being revealed now. And so in Ephesians 3, let's read verses 4 through 6. Uh, we find out that the church was one of these mysteries, not revealed before. And so verse 4 says uh, this, By which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, 
And here it is, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. And then jump down to verse 9. And he says, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. And so the mystery Paul described when referring to the church was that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, believing Gentiles and believing Jews would be fellow heirs and members of the same entity, namely the church. And so when we talk about the church, and obviously the first mention of it here in Matthew 16, we find out a lot more about it after Matthew 16, but this is the first mention of it. What we're talking about is we're talking about a brand new entity that didn't exist um, before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension. It started on the day of Pentecost. That was a very new entity. And so when you look at that statement, you realize that Adam wasn't part of the church, that Abraham wasn't part of the church, that Noah, that Moses, that King David, none of those men were part of the church. Rahab, uh, you know, she wasn't part of the church. The church actually was a brand new entity that began on the day of Pentecost and we believe it'll it'll end or it'll be closed up um, on the day of the rapture. And that's who's going to form this, this church, this ecclesia in a specific sense. And so going back to Matthew 16, what we see is that Jesus' statement here about building his church had a context. And the context was uh, it was made following Israel's national rejection of Jesus by its leaders. And we see that in Matthew 12. For time's sake, we won't read it. But um, if you remember, by, by Matthew 12, Jesus had been performing uh, many incredible miracles. And it wasn't that he was just performing miracles to perform them. He was specifically performing miracles that had been prophesied about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And so he's he's showing the Jewish people that that he was the Messiah and he was doing miracles that the Old Testament said the Messiah would do to validate and verify not only his identity but his message. And by by the time we get to Matthew 12, they had seen miracle after miracle after miracle this the leaders of the Jewish nation Many Jews, many Gentiles even had seen these miracles. And by the time we get to Matthew 12, they had seen so many miracles um, that they were no longer without excuse. And in Matthew 12, um, probably out of pure jealousy and hatred of Jesus, what they did is they tried to explain Jesus' miracles by accusing him of doing those miracles by the power of of Beelzebub or by the power of Satan. And so we see that this was uh, a point in time that Jesus began to shift. You'll see this really clearly as you, if you ever study the book of Matthew all the way through, you'll see he began to shift from offering the kingdom to Israel to foretelling his coming death and resurrection and the building of his church. In fact, what's really fascinating about this, this, um, this chapter in Matthew is this really becomes uh, kind of the the pinnacle of the book, and you see the book take a, an entirely different direction going forward. Whereas Jesus before this is uh, he and his followers are preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom being, and we we did a study on this last year, but the gospel of the kingdom being your king is near, 
and he's ready to establish this long foretold and promised kingdom. Uh, that's the good news. Gospel means good news. The gospel of the kingdom is simply that. Um, and they needed to put their faith in that king um, in order to be saved or to gain entrance into the kingdom, to be born again. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And so the gospel of the kingdom incorporated that. But what you'll see starting in um, really right after the rejection is you'll see that uh, Jesus even begins to speak of uh, the gospel of grace. Remember, the gospel of grace is that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose again. And you'll see even the shift in Matthew 12, the very first time that Jesus begins to describe um, his finished work on the cross. He says this in verse 38 of Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What's he talking about there? He's talking about his burial. He's talking about his coming death and his burial and his resurrection. And so you see, even there, this, this be, he's beginning to shift from offering the kingdom to Israel to foretelling his death and the building of his church. Now, in chapter 16, Jesus' mention of the church uh, here came from a conversation between him and his disciples, which began in Matthew 16, 13, where Jesus asked them a simple question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And so we see that in Matthew 16, 13. And then we see the, the disciples answer. Well, let's read 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Verse 14, so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And so we see the disciples speculated that, that people were saying uh, he was John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, even one of the prophets. But then Jesus asked them directly, who do you say that I am? And we see uh, in verse 16 that Simon gives a rock solid declaration. You are the Christ the son of the living God. Um, and this is what, what, what Jesus referred to in Matthew 16, 18, when he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. This, this confession that Peter made, that he's the Christ, he's the son of the living God. This is what uh, Jesus was referring to when he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Um, now, some have speculated that Peter was the rock upon which the church would be built. And um, thankfully, you know, we're not left to just argue that with people. The Greek text actually proves that this was not the case. We want to kind of give you a, a couple of points to show this um, so that you're familiar at least um, with, the, with the interpretation behind um, some of these nuances in the Greek. Uh, so when Jesus said, you are Peter, he used the Greek word petros, meaning stone. It was the Greek word petros, meaning a stone. And that's how he, he identified Peter. And we're talking about verse 18. And he says, and I also say to you that you are Peter. You are 
Petros, again, meaning a stone. Now, on the other hand, when Jesus spoke of the foundation on which he would erect the church, when he said, upon this rock, he used the stronger word Petra. So not Petros, but Petra. And Petra means a massive rock, not a stone, or even a rock cliff. And it was also used, Jesus used it with the definite article, the. So it wasn't Peter, you are a stone, and upon this stone I will build my church. But it was, Peter, you are a stone, and upon this massive rock cliff um, I will build my church. And so Jesus was not talking about Peter, a stone, but he was talking about the massive rock, Te Petra. There's our article again in the Greek, Te Petra, Jesus Christ himself. We see that in verse 18. He says, I will... Also say to you that you are Peter, you're a a small stone. And then he says, and on this massive rock or boulder, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Speaking of uh, the church. And um, in the Greek, it's it's great because it's very clear um, because in many languages, uh, Greek is one of them. The noun and the article must match in gender. And since the article te, which is, which is our word the, is feminine, it fits with the noun petra, which is the massive rock, but it doesn't fit with petros. And what we're saying is the feminine article te cannot refer to the masculine noun petros. It can't be connected with that word. And so therefore, when Jesus said upon this rock, he was not referring to Peter. Because even the article must match. And so the article does match Petra, which is the massive stone. And again, just shows that he's not referring to Peter. He's not going to build the local church on Peter, uh, as some teach. And what's really fascinating about that whole argument is, is just a few verses later, the Holy Spirit led Matthew to record Christ's rebuke of Peter seemingly reiterating that Peter was not the massive rock, Te Petra, on which the church was going to be built. In fact, jump down, same exact context, Matthew 16, but jump down to verse 21. Again, notice the shift in Jesus' focus away from offering the kingdom to his death and resurrection. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. That's the gospel of grace. But then look at Peter's response. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, O Lord, this shall not happen to you. Verse 23, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. And so we can see that if Peter was the rock upon whom the church was going to be built, that was a pretty shaky rock, even just uh, a couple of verses later, in that same context where Jesus really commended him uh, for listening to to the Lord um, in terms of Jesus' identity. But it was Peter's confession of who Jesus Christ was that is the massive rock upon which the church is to be built on. And we have this confirmed uh, in many other passages in scripture, Christ is the rock upon which the church is built on and on which it stands. And so, again, a lot of references there for, for you to look at. But let's look at a couple of them together. Go to Acts uh, chapter 4, verse 11. Um, 
And uh, this is, again, Peter teaching here now, uh, after he's received the, the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost. And he says this uh, to a group of rulers, elders, and scribes uh, in, after they had been arrested. But verse 11, he speaks of Jesus. He says, this is the stone. There's our word again, Petra, which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And then Ephesians 2.20, in speaking about the apostles and about uh, revelation in general, says this, uh, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so we see that Jesus is the rock. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us there's no other foundation that can be laid except Jesus Christ. And so Clearly, Jesus is talking about the church being built on himself, being built on his identity, who he is and what what he's done. And so let's continue to look at Matthew 16, 18. And we want to kind of examine this verse a little bit further um, because it's just so important to to draw some of these truths out of this verse as we consider uh, what the church is. and where its foundation came from. So uh, number one there, Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And what we learn from that is Jesus Christ will build his church. And one of the things that we see here is, uh, which should make us all feel comfortable and relaxed a little bit, is Jesus Christ is ultimately responsible for building his church. And I've got a question for you just to kind of consider Um, Do you think he's talking about the local church here or do you think he's talking about the universal church here? Something to something to consider, because even um, those of the youngest members of our group tonight uh, are probably aware or have seen or have at least heard of local churches closing their doors. Um, And so was Jesus guaranteeing that he would continue to build Every local church was he uh, making a, a promise that um, every local church would grow in number, or that they would be built up, or is he making a promise that the universal church will continue to be built by him? And I think it's a universal church promise. I think we see even examples of uh, local churches, even in the scriptures. Uh, the, the threat is for, for Jesus Christ to, um, in Revelation to remove the lampstand of the church at Ephesus. Now, that doesn't contradict Matthew 16. I think the promise here is related to the universal church and Jesus Christ will build his church. Now, while Jesus Christ's statement, I will build my church is in the future tense, um, from the time he's speaking, it's also in the indicative mood in the Greek. And the, the indicative mood is important because it makes it a statement of fact. It, it basically makes it a promise based on the integrity of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus stated that he would definitely build his church no matter what. Now, one of the things that we realize is that you and I play a part in this, this building project. And we do that through evangelism. Uh, and discipleship. But make no mistake, this is one of those things to keep in mind, Jesus Christ is going to build his church with you or without you, with me or without me. He's going to build his church. And that's what this statement says. It's a very strong statement to see what, what Jesus Christ has intended to do and what he will 
accomplish. And so it's him that's going to build his church. Notice this too. He did not say, I am building my church, present tense, or I have been building my church in the past. But notice the, the tense of the verb, I will build my church. And the fact that he uses the future tense implies a few more important details. And I think I mentioned this uh, in passing a couple of minutes ago, but Jesus has not been building his church in the past during the Old Testament times. Clearly, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and so forth were not a part of the church. This is something that's still future, that's yet future from the time Jesus is speaking here. It also indicates that Jesus Christ was not building the church during his first advent. When he stated, I will build my church, he was speaking of a future time. And if we identify that time correctly, and I believe there's reasons for that we'll get into in further studies, I believe that happened in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. That was the future event that he was speaking about when he would begin to build his church. And so we see that, that Jesus will build his church. We also want to pick up on the key word build. He says, I, upon this rock, I will build my church. And one of the things that we draw from that word is that it was used to describe the, used to describe the construction of a building. And, and when we look at construction of a building, it's a process. It includes time. It includes skill. It includes laborers. And what we see is that Christ is progressively building his church and believers are his fellow workers. And 1 Corinthians 3, um, 5 through 9 really puts it well. Uh, let's turn there. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9 says this, Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed. As the Lord gave to each one, I planted. Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And then notice this next verse. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. And who is Paul speaking to there? He's speaking to the local church at Corinth, but by implication that could apply to any local church or the universal church um, at large. The other thing we see is in Ephesians 5, uh, 25 through 27, tells us that Christ loved the church and gave his life for the church and continues to purify it day by day. And we see that that, that again reflects a time element that he continues to do, that he's continuing to build his church. The coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell believers on the day of Pentecost marked the beginning of Christ's church-building project. In fact, look at Acts 2, verse 47. And so this is following the day of Pentecost. This is following uh, the speaking in tongues. This is following Peter's sermon, uh, for which people responded, uh, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter gives them this instruction and then we learn in in acts 237 uh, that they were praising god and having favor with all the people and then notice this next phrase and the lord added to the church daily those who were being saved and so we see the church mentioned for the first time in the book of acts right there on the day of pentecost um, in acts chapter 2 and then letter d at the rapture christ's building project will be completed and it's at that time that he will present the church to himself as a beautiful bride without any 
defects. Okay, so we've got the beginning of the church at the day of Pentecost. We've got the end of the church uh, on the day of the rapture. And everything in between is part of that church age and part of Christ's building project. We go on in Matthew 16, 18, as we keep pulling out phrases. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And so what we, we see there is that the church belongs to Jesus Christ. This is his church. And as we say often, but it's worth repeating, the church does not belong to some pastor or elder or deacon or apostle or pope or church board or denomination. Uh, the church belongs to Jesus Christ. It's his church. Uh, we are, those who are in leadership are under shepherds of the great shepherd, but it, everything belongs uh, to him. And, and in fact, if we didn't see that clear enough, the word translated my is in the emphatic position in the Greek sentence, which clearly shows that the church belongs to Jesus Christ in him alone. As we go on uh, in verse 18, we see the phrase, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, gates, and when you think of gates, they're typically used to keep out invading armies. Hades would have been understood by Jesus' audience as the place of the dead. And so, when the church goes into all the world to preach the gospel and make disciples, it prevails against Hades. And when you, when you think about that, when he talks about the gates of Hades, he's talking about gates designed to keep you out. And when we go in the world... To preach the gospel, we're, we are literally involved in a rescue mission, reaching, if you will, inside the gates uh, of, of Hades and snatching people out of a certain destruction by, by giving the gospel to them and exhorting them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's part of the mission of the church. That's how Jesus Christ is accomplishing. And he's basically saying, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. There's no gates can keep uh, the gospel at bay, if, if you will. And so the church rescues sinners from sin, Satan, and inevitable destruction in hell. And how, again, how does the church do that? It's nothing special about us. It's what we have is a special message called the gospel. And the gospel is what saves people from hell. The fact that Christ died for their sins so they wouldn't have to face that punishment and how that eternal death, he died for them and rose again. God accepted his finished work on each one of our behalf so that we wouldn't have to remain, if you will, inside the gates of Hades. We're actually snatched out from the gates and the gates of Hades will not overpower the building project that Jesus Christ is doing with the church. And then one last thing we want to look at in the phrase in Matthew 16, 18 and that's the, the part uh, that the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And what we uh, want to draw from that is the church is going to have a continuous existence until the rapture of the church. Many times we can get discouraged as Christians because we feel like churches are being closed. Less and less people are going to church. Less and less people seem to believe in God. Lots of things are being accepted in our, in our secular world. But Jesus Christ guarantees that the gates of Hades will not overpower it, that he will continue building his church until the day of the rapture. So we can be encouraged by that. Now here Jesus spoke of the church, uh, ecclesia, in a global sense to describe the universal church. And we kind of mentioned that 
earlier. Notice he didn't say that he would build his churches, plural, but rather his church, singular. So that kind of gives us a, a really key observation in the text to know, okay, what is he talking about? Local churches or the universal church, singular. So we just kind of observe the language that he used and, and make the conclusion that he's talking about his universal church here when in this passage in general. And so we see throughout church history, though, local churches have come and gone. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, but in Revelation 2.5, Jesus vowed to shut down the local church at Ephesus if it did not renew its first love. Let's go to Revelation 2, chapter 5. Again, he's talking to an entire church here. He's not talking to an individual believer. He's talking to an entire church. I had a pastor uh, of a of another church, I won't name the denomination, um, get into a discussion with me about this. And he, he thought that Revelation 2.5 taught that you could lose your salvation. He thought... Yeah, this is what Revelation 2.5 taught. Let's read it. It says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And, and I said, I said, well, he's not even talking to an individual there. He's talking to a church. He said, well, how do you know that? Well, go back up to Revelation chapter 1 uh, in verse 20. And he says, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands, which you saw are the seven churches. So if he removes their lampstand, what is he removing? Well, he's removing the church. Okay. So we, we made that comment again, local churches come and go, um, and the universal church does not come and go. The universal church is being built continually until the day of the rapture. So just very important um, to understand that distinction. And then finally, Jesus promised that the universal church to which all of us belong will never cease to exist. Neither the powers of death, Satan, or Satan's demons can ever prevail over the universal church. And so let's go ahead and, and tie a knot there tonight. Let me click off of this. I'm going to stop sharing my screen here with my PowerPoint.